loosing all of your all of your social uh, energy early, but I am delighted to see you all um, chatting. Please do be brave and write your sacred value on a postcard. I will not grill anyone. I will just ask you to say a bit more. Where's George? George is going to go down the aisle. Please pass your postcards along. I'm just going to leave an awkward silence until I see some people doing it. <laughs> the power of social pressure. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. Wonderful. Um, while that is happening, I will introduce tonight's guest, Oliver Berkman, who uh, is a journalist and an author known to many of you. He has written three major books. I want to say major in case I've missed any <laughs> minor ones. No, uh, really only two major ones if they're major at all, because the other one was a collection of columns, so I, I just had to like print them out. Great. The collection of columns was called Help. Yeah. Uh, how to become slightly happier and get a bit more done. The antidote, happiness for people who cannot stand positive thinking. And most recently, 4,000 weeks, time management for mortals, which I have to say is your best subtitle by a long way. Oh. Says a lot. It's beautiful. Um, and we have much to talk about tonight, but we're going to uh, characteristically go deep. But I'm going to give uh, Oliver a moment to uh, warm up by asking not immediately what is sacred to him, but how he gets on with the word. Uh, it sort of induces a panic attack, really. Um, sorry, thank you. Um, hello, everyone. <laughs> it's really lovely to be here before I talk about that. Um, uh, yeah, my dad put my name into ChatGPT the other day, and it, and it gave a biography, and it said that in 2021, I'd stepped away from writing to spend more time with my family. <laughs> Does it, it know it. something yeah, that we don't? <laughs> Very odd. Anyway. Um, yeah, I'm kind of... Uh, this word triggers an inferiority complex that I have um, with... Uh, w w about sort of a certain kind of religious person who I feel like has figured something out about life that I haven't figured out. One of the most um, straightforwardly kind of ego-boosting responses that I get to the books or to things I've, other things I've written is um, when somebody emails to say that they hadn't really, that I put something into words that they'd sort of dimly understood, but it was, but it becomes a lot clearer thanks to something that I'd written. And that's like, that's great. It's more than just ego-boosting, but it is ego-boosting because it makes me think like, well, at least I'm somewhere on a level with other people about like what they understand about life. But I always have the suspicion that uh, quite a few religious people, uh, I might, the things I'm spending all my life trying to work towards and then finally coming up with in books, they might be just reading it and being like, well, yeah, that's, that's obvious to us. <laughs> so that's the inferiority complex there. Um, it's kind of a... I don't know what that word means. I will try to answer the question, but I, I don't know what it means. Is this work, Is this sound working? I'm getting a bit of a... Yeah, okay. yeah. we can hear you well. Cool. Um, we will come to that. There is no need for an inferiority complex. But okay. having had a bit of time to sit with this slightly hefty concept, what bubbled up for you that might be sacred for you? Uh, I just have to risk cliche and sounding like a book on mindfulness meditation and say that I think it is, it's something like 
reality. It's something like the moment, it's, it's being here in time, beyond the concepts that we use to try to grab hold of it or make sense of it, it's the, it's the, it's the experience of, of uh, mutually being consciousnesses here. Uh, that sounds kind of uh, inarticulate, now it comes out, but I mean, I think um, it's, it's, it's got to be that. It's got to be, it, it can't just be sort of values that you think about and aim to sort of steer your life by. It's got to be the life underneath the concepts. I feel like there should be a, a cliche permission giving. Because right, as I won't soon say as that we, again. I won't, I won't qualify uh, it. I mean, the, for so many people, it's these indescribably, these concepts, the language around which is just worn out, like mm -hmm. love, that we can't think of a more profound word for, but can't get away from. Um, and so I feel the tolerance of the discomfort around cliche is is the only way that we get to talk yeah, about what's yeah. real. The fear of not being original or not being ironic and distanced uh, stops us yeah. encountering reality, I think. Where has that value kind of shown up in your life? Has it, has it guided decisions or um, tell me a bit about how it's played out? I think it comes from a sort of long, slow process of realising that I had spent a lot of my life doing something else, right? Trying to, in some sense, get a handle on reality rather than be in it. Certainly get a handle on time, which was the motivation. Exploring that strange neurosis was the motivation for uh, 4,000 weeks. Um, just realizing that you can spend your whole life trying to get to some future point at which everything is in working order and it all feels like it's like it's functioning well and you're doing the right thing and you're you know you're sort of uh, making a you're quitting yourself properly and 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 the sort of huge uh, relaxation of the thought that actually it's just this right it's just it's just this and being here and being here with other people. There's a, there's like a Zen, I'm, my head is deeply in Zen at the moment. Um, there's, a, there's a Zen uh, teaching story. I don't think it is a koan actually, though the distinction is a little bit uh, obscure to me, but there's a, there's a teaching story about how um, uh, a Zen master called Dongshan, when he was a young monk leaving the monastery, asked, them, asked the, the master of that monastery, if I should ever, this is, I'm paraphrasing, something like, if I should ever have to encapsulate the master's teaching, if I'm ever asked and I have to encapsulate the master's teaching in a single sentence, what should I say? And the, uh, the, the elderly Zen master says, uh, just this is it. And then the next line in the English translation of this is Dongshan side. Hmm. And it almost moves me to tears, really, that, that thought of just like the idea of just sighing back into reality and not needing to fight to make it something else. is like then I'm in the presence of something very, very important and bigger than my dumb thoughts. Yeah. I'm going to make myself stay uh, here before we dive into that and ask about your childhood. Um, it's, I always find it helpful before we start unpacking someone's ideas to just get a sense of their story and the things that have formed them, particularly any big ideas that you think were shaping you as you were growing up. 
so in sort of religious terms, in some way, I was, I was raised as a, as a Quaker. Um, I don't know how religious that really was in my case. You can totally be an atheist and a Quaker. And it was very much, you know, my experience of that was sort of the Guardian readership at prayer, basically. That was my, <laughs> that's, my, that's my upbringing. Um, Do you spend a lot of time in silence? You, you went to meetings and... Yeah, you know, 15 minutes before the kids went out to do the kids' activities, because that's uh, all, you can, all you can ask of, of them. Uh, but, uh, and no one, Alan Watts writes somewhere about going to Quaker meetings and being amazed to realize that no, after a while that nobody's meditating, they're just like sitting there. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I, I think I probably spent quite a lot of that just like worrying about things and one, things I thought I had to do or something. Um, but there's something very beautiful about that whole, uh, certainly about the kind of egalitarianism of Quakerism, right? That, that, that always made a lot of sense to me. And I think the, uh, the fact that anybody can uh, you know, minister as they feel moved to do. Um, and then at the time, you know, when I was a kind of older child, adolescent or whatever, I think the, the sort of political and social testimony of Quakerism felt very important. The idea that you can't have a meaningful religion without uh, some kind of political engagement. That feels a lot more fraught now because it feels like you know, not enough politics in things is not our problem, right? The, the idea that things need to be more politicized isn't, doesn't feel like the, the, the challenge of the moment. So now when I'm sort of, you know, I don't feel particularly drawn to Quakerism these days because I feel like I, I, want, I want the thing that isn't immersion in political debate. And my brief forays into Brooklyn friends and other Quaker meetings suggests to me that it's mainly just talking about politics and social and cultural disputes. Uh, that's probably very unfair, but it was my sort of experience of the handful of Sunday mornings that I, that I did that. Uh, other ideas? Um, I'm trying to think that explicitly or implicitly, I don't know, the... Um, um, I think that there's a very important strand in my sort of psychology that comes through my father, uh, who is uh, Jewish, and who's my, his mother, my grandmother, who um, escaped Nazi Germany when she was 12, I think, uh, and a sort of nebulous anxiety and uh, need to feel like you are in control of planning your future that's going to happen, if that's your... Uh, you know, adolescent trauma. Hmm. Um, Were you an anxious kid? I don't, yeah, I think so. I was a very anxious sort of young adult, and I think I was an anxious kid, although uh, I don't have clear memories of that. Um, and I didn't used to take any of this sort of intergenerational thing very seriously. Uh, I think partly because when something like, you know, the Holocaust is such a sort of huge history book type topic it doesn't it feels weird to sort of claim it as something that makes an impact on you if you're not personally someone who went through that kind of hell um but i've i've become more um open to that notion that that's a that's a real thing uh one of the strangest emotional experiences of the last couple of years was sitting down to watch the uh the disney movie encanto the 
Lin-Manuel Miranda musical <laughs> about uh, a family of gifted kids in a house that talks and acts, and which has this theme about, uh, I think it's Colombian history, it's about, trauma. about intergenerational trauma. Sitting down to watch it, just like we'd watched Moana and Toy Story or whatever, and like being completely emotionally blindsided by that, by that film, in a way that my son absolutely wasn't, and is kind of <laughs> not interested just in it at all. Lot. And right, yeah, and it's like, I, it, we're all like, you know, we on a weekend we're like, let's watch a movie, and I'm like, Encanto, and he's like, no, we've seen it. <laughs> Don't need to see it again. But that there are multiple points in that movie that are just so, uh, yeah, I was just completely shocked by the mm. effect it had on me, and I think it is partly for that that theme so clearly brought out. Yeah, and you went to Comprehensive School in New York. Went to Old York. Old York. Went to uh, Cambridge. Uh, Political and social sciences. Why did you study those? Because uh, if any teenager really knows, but yeah, no, it seemed like the closest fit to the things that I was interested in. Uh, turned out it was widely considered by other people at university to be a an easy subject mm -hmm. that you uh, that you did because you couldn't do harder ones. Um, that was not how I approached it. I became incredibly stressed in, an, I think, a, in hindsight, an unnecessary way about uh, the, the university work. But um, yeah, no, who knows? It wasn't um, a fun time. Oh, I mean, university in some ways was fantastic because I was doing student journalism and that was like, that was, that was just brilliant and uh, uh, frequently extremely hilarious and, um, and, and very sort of, uh, a lot of camaraderie we spent in the little uh, office of the of Vasti, the student newspaper. The work side of it, no, it was not fun. I I became, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, I sort of made myself ill with uh, with sort of what I felt I needed to do and how sort of this is a very it's a tale as old as time I think, especially for kids going from comprehensives to Oxbridge. Not that I went to a gritty comprehensive, although I sometimes try to pretend that that was the case. It really wasn't. But you work for the Guardian. It's, there was you enough have of, to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> there, was, there was enough of a, of a class thing there to, for it to sort of freak me out. Um, and so I sort of spent a lot of time being incredibly stressed about it and then thinking I was going to fail miserably and then doing, comparatively speaking, within the year, really, really, really well, uh, which is a terrible, you learn something really bad from that, which is that like... Stress if, pays if off. If you really, really make yourself ill with stress, you'll get great results, yeah. Um, and, you know, but, you're, but, but I also have, you know, it was a vivid experience as well of spending sort of multiple years um, scrambling for a goal achieving the goal, like more than achieving the goal, uh, and being aware that the sort of elation of that goal achievement lasted for, you know, four days, <laughs> a week. Um, and also, you know, I don't want to, I think the, the sort of social privilege side of going to that university has really helped me in my life. I don't want to, I don't want to um, uh, downplay that, but the degree result, like absolutely never. That, that, that's had nothing to do with my, like, getting a first instead of a 2-1, that was, 
Yeah. It had no effect on my life. Not worth it. <laughs> um, as I was reading your books, I went back to see if you had studied philosophy, because the it feels to me that's what you're doing with a lot of your books. You are asking this question as old of time, as old as time, which is what is the good life? How now shall we live? What is it to be a person? <laughs> what do I do with this finite amount of time? But you didn't. You studied social and political science. Looking back, do you think those questions were already nagging at you or not? I think on some level they, they must have been. I don't know, there's a, the, the, the Brian McGee, you know, the philosopher, TV presenter guy who, who died only a year or two ago, I think, has wrote a really interesting book called Confessions of a Philosopher. And he writes about this idea of having a memory of having what he calls philosophical problems, like lying on the grass at age five and wondering if space goes on forever, which is nuts, or that space stops at some point, which is equally nuts, and like not being able to fathom that. And I think maybe I did fall on that side of the divide in terms of like puzzling about those things from quite a young age. But it really just seems to me like if you had the good fortune to be able to write about and think about the meaning of life, like, why would you not? That's the thing. It's kind of, it, it, it's almost odd to see it as a question because I can't really get myself into a position of thinking that it wouldn't be interesting to, to do. And then I feel like something I figured out I could do quite early on in my sort of journalistic career was, was take deep, big things and write about them in a sort of hopefully very down-to-earth way and get some humour out of that out of that gap so uh, crossing that gap so um, you know it's my one trick I got to do it you know how did the Guardian column come about which feels like it was a, a, a beginning of something that allowed that to become your your vocation really uh, the sort of uh, Surface level argument is uh, for that is that uh, my editor at the time on uh, in Guardian Features saw that I was um, reading all sorts of time management and productivity books myself anyway, and decided to extract some content out of this. So I was just reading them anyway, and, and make and uh, so why not? So why not uh, write about them? I think the the the. Uh, deeper thing was that the thing that really hit was that it was just a very, very good format in which to sort of explore these things without, you know, 550 words. It's a, such a great length for kind of going a couple of metres down some deep issue and then not having to sort of grapple with it in great detail. But you get to, you get to engage with it a bit and you get to sort of... Um, you know, you can. It got very formulaic, right? You can sort of. You have a. You can have a funny introduction. You can establish what the topic is. You can develop it, and then you can take it in one interesting extra direction. Bam, 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 bam. That's the end of the word count. Um, uh, so, and I'm. You know, I'm. I'm being silly in a way, but actually, there's something really useful about having some kind of fixed vehicle in which to then do these kind of things that would otherwise be endless, like. If I tried to just sit down and write a book about those topics, I would have ended up on a park bench 30 decades later with like a stack of manuscript paper, um, sort of talking to myself. So uh, it was really, yeah, that combination of like the, the topics being potentially kind of huge, 
but if you don't have a really good idea for a column by Monday lunchtime, you're going to have to go with a bad idea and just do it <laughs> anyway. That's such a good discipline. Yeah. yeah. And it. So we've talked a little bit about your early life. What Oliver and I have just talked about is basically all that is publicly available uh, <laughs> about you and. Ask ChatGPT. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Some big scandals coming. No. Um, and as I've been reading a lot of your work, the thing that really stands out is how you are writing about very, very deep subjects, almost smuggled under subjects that seem easier to tolerate, <laughs> like procrastination or time management. And you're doing it with a very um, light touch, beautiful humour, but without giving a lot of yourself away. And a lot of other writers would have approached it differently. That one of the lines that stood out in the 4,000 weeks was, um, don't worry, don't, you mentioned something very light about, I think, anxiety. And they said, don't worry, we won't be dwelling here yeah. on my particular things. You can feel that, what, what is that, Oliver? What is in you that, that, that feels like backing away from how these things are really deeply work, at work in you is not appropriate or you're not comfortable with it or question mark? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any consciousness of hiding stuff, like of of of, of holding back from talking about things that that I uh, that are going on in me or with me, and then sort of keeping them from the the audience. I I do think that I'm writing for. An audience who might be like me in that respect, I'd be like a little bit wary of just diving into some like very very California therapeutic kind of kind of writing where it where it's all sort of and I think so. I'm trying to. I, it feels to me like being. You're not accusing me of being dishonest, but it feels to I'm, me like it feels to me like being uh, sort of more honest in a way about about that discomfort and making that be there on the page. But I don't know, I don't, it's, it is just what comes naturally. I think there's something I'm, I think there's a good tension between that kind of attitude and mm. then going deep into these things. But I could also just be like really repressed. Um, and no, no, seriously, it's very kind of you to shake your head. But um, uh, I think these books and the writing that I do is a, a form of, uh, is a personal therapeutic thing. I am definitely sort of grappling with stuff and trying to um, come to terms with it in myself. And yeah, I'm always a little bit worried that people, not only religious people, that's specifically one, one constituency, are just more, have come to terms with these things much more in themselves and are just like, oh, well done, like he's almost got there, well done, you know, that sort of. I, that, that, that sounds that, deeply um, patronising and annoying. But we, <laughs> well, yeah, but this is an imaginary person yeah. in my head. You've got to understand. We all have the cast of them. Um, I guess I'm, uh, p partly behind that question is yeah. a kind of a gender question in that uh, many of your fans are men. And it feels like you're doing this. It, sometimes as I was reading, it felt, a, it felt like if you had been born 100 years earlier, you would have been a minister or... Um, more straightforwardly a philosopher or, you know, that, and the desperation of many of us, but I think particularly men, for spaces where they are allowed to think about meaning mm -hmm. and belonging um, uh, was really 
they're really missing, mm -hmm. and they they find it in your books. But and it's very charming. Uh, it feels like you're constantly backing away from. You're not you're not becoming a Jordan Peterson very clearly because that's the other yeah. approach, right? To find that there's an audience for accumulating wisdom and synthesizing it and offering it, which mm -hmm. you're both doing. Um, and you can go down the guru route, but there's a there's a a fear of that. And you do you think it's spending so much time with positivity people? <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of it's conscious. So I'm sort of stepping outside myself and trying to psychoanalyze myself here. I think that. Um, I sort of find, maybe this is just defensive, but I find myself wanting to stick up for this way of approaching those, mm. those issues, right? I think that um, I, I'm not sitting there saying, like, I'm going to do this in a way that feels safe for repressed British, other repressed British men to, to engage with these issues. But, I, but I, that may be one of the, it may be one of the effects. Um, I think it, you know, it, it acknowledges the, the, the vulnerability around these these things, and I I don't think of myself as approaching them and then running and then getting too close to it and running away. Mm. I think of myself as approaching it, acknowledging that it brings up a whole lot of this stuff and that there's something embarrassing or uh, un-British or kind of overly earnest about it, but going there anyway. Mm. Now, that's not, it's not for me to say that I, that I managed to go there anyway. Um, uh, you may feel that I don't. No, I, I, find it very, I find it very beautiful and interesting, and I think often the way people write about these things in, in public, and particularly women, is there's potentially pressure to be too confessional. Right. And uh, navigating that line that, you know, the most particular is the most universal, and how much we share of ourselves and... Um, vulnerability, which comes up a lot in in four thousand weeks, um, m almost everything that you're doing is leaving me very thought provoked in a very beautiful way. Um, so it was a question, not a critique. Yeah, no, no, no. But I'm really interested in it because I know that it's there, and I, I mean, maybe I would be interested in it because it's all about me. But um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I do think that uh, the thing that I have found over and over again is that the thing that that the, the the navigational, the navigating, the North Star, whatever that I should follow, is like writing about how things really do actually feel from my point of view today. Mm. And when I write sort of email newsletters where I sort of talk about how I struggle with some aspect of something in daily life, there's always like a whole bunch of people replying with like shock and surprise that uh, that I that I have bad days or whatever, mm -hmm. and I'm like. It's wild. I feel like I talk about it all the time, and I call the <laughs> newsletter like the imperfectionist, and build it all around the idea of not knowing exactly what I'm doing or how to live life. But so I think like um, there's something really powerful in sort of uh, not feeling like you have to pretend to be more evolved or um, uh, realized or enlightened or whatever than, than you than you are, and so. Um, I take that to be just, you know, that's what's actually going on inside my head, that, 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 that coming towards and going away from yeah. these topics. Yeah, it is remarkable how um, persistent the lie is in all of us, isn't it? That everyone else has it together and we don't. Yeah. I'm constantly yeah. surprised. Totally, yeah.
that yeah. everyone is struggling. Um, tell me about the antidote and particularly this kind of via negativa sense. What was the, um, the thread of turning away from positivity towards something a bit more complex? Um, yeah, so I don't think I necessarily saw that so clearly at the, at the time, but the, at the time what I was trying to do in that book was to make the argument that, you know, it's not only, there's a certain kind of positive thinking that nobody needs telling is, uh, or nobody, almost nobody needs telling is kind of absurd and obviously doesn't work and is kind of something that we've all laughed at, especially British people laughing at a certain kind of American positivity for a long time. But I wanted to, what I was exploring was the idea that actually uh, one level down, there's something in that positivity approach that actually we do all subscribe to and that does lead us astray. That the idea that ultimately, um, you know, uh, focusing on the positive and uh, seeking happiness as an endpoint and, uh, you know, setting uh, uh, inspiring goals and chasing after them, all of these things, they do really deeply sort of uh, uh, govern what a lot of us do, even if we would never be seen dead at a motivational seminar like the one I, I went to in, uh, in Texas for that book. Um, and I think, you know, it wasn't a question of me. That, so I was, as ever, it's like, you know, it's the book of advice that I need to, to hear. And I think that the idea there is just that actually allowing in the negative side of things and being with anxiety and sadness and failure and all those things is the way to live with them and to some extent to sort of transcend them as opposed to trying to get rid of them from your life and sort of eradicate them. I think as I move on in writing and thinking about stuff, I feel like the sort of governing idea here that was sort of trying to get out there and that has become a bit clearer to me recently is that there is this incredible, there's this incredible liberation in seeing that problems and the, that we have in life are kind of worse than we think. There's a, so like in the very simple example of busyness that I talk about in the book, right, there's, if you think that it's really, really hard to make time for all the things on your to-do list, you will torment yourself forever trying to find ways to, to do it. Um, if you see that it's actually completely impossible to make time for everything in your to-do list, then you have hit the ground. And at that point, you can sort of stand up and start making, building a, uh, a meaningful life. There is this thing, I'm sorry, I've said it a lot of times, but I do want to throw it in because it seems like it, it really gets at this. There's a, so British born, uh, Zen teacher, Jiu Kennett, who said that, who said that her style of teaching was not to lighten the burden of the student, but to make it so heavy that he or she would put it down. And I think there's something incredibly deep in that, in this notion that like, if you can really see exactly how finite we are, exactly how reliant on each other we are, exactly what a mess we're in, mm. in all sorts of ways, that's freeing because then you stop, you finally give up trying to, um, trying to believe there might be an out and then you can turn to where you actually are and, and be, be here and do this, yeah. yeah. We spoke um, last week and I'd read The Antidote and 4,000 Weeks kind of back to back. And it was really interesting to do that because they were written, you know, several years apart for you. Yes, many years. Um, but what I said was it's this like, it reads as this deepening spiral 
of meaning and the themes are so interconnected. And the word that comes up again and again is surrender. Surrender to our limits. Surrender to the fact we are not and never shall be in control of our lives. Mm. <laughs> surrender to discomfort. Surrender to suffering. Surrender to our interconnectedness and our independence. Surrender to the complexity of our notion of the self and how un unstable it is. <clears throat> what is the... Uh, it, it, and it, it is, as someone who is a Christian, there is, it, it was a beautiful and life-giving journey that you took me on, not in a, well, of course, Oliver, you know, <laughs> Here, let me give you a Bible, um, uh, but in the sense of um, how, mu how much of this wisdom, how much of this, uh, how much of this story of interdependence and our need for grace and our limits and our fragility is there in these great religious traditions and a sadness about how inaccessible um, they are to people. And it, and it left me with this, where has this other story come from? <laughs> you know, I'd love you to just speak a little bit to that, the, the story that you're trying to create an antidote to, but in both books, I think, mm -hmm. Um, of kind of the superhuman self. Mm -hmm. Where has that come from in us? Why do we start off at least wanting to believe it? Wow, that's such a good Sorry. question. It was a yeah. very no. meandering question. No, no, it's a great question. And it's like, it's, I mean, I don't have an answer, but I'll certainly uh, say some words before handing, <laughs> handing back over to you and asking you some questions about Christianity, if, if I, I hope I get somewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I was something I was consciously evasive about in 4,000 weeks was like causal chains here, right? I'm, you could set out to say that everything that's wrong with our feelings about time is capitalism's fault. You can set out to say that capitalism is a symptom of deeper things, and, and eventually it's, and, or technology has, there's a big sort of industrial, uh, industrialization and technology piece. Um, there's an evolutionary psychology always waiting in the wings to step in and say, ah, that, this is the explanation for everything. I don't, I, I, I just sort of end at the point of like, we are, uh, you know, afraid of the fact that we die and that we are somewhat uniquely um, material beings with the deeply finite material beings with the conscious capacity to envision, to understand that we're going to die and to envision uh, infinity and, and, and the envision the possibility of escape from our, from our finitude. And so this creates a sort of insurmountable thing that we're always trying to uh, surmount by, if not literally, with sort of, you know, transhumanist uh, experiments in Silicon Valley, then by then on a, on a sort of um, uh, conceptual level, by by attaining a kind of control over our lives that would be tantamount to stepping outside of the finite um, the finite stream. And so you can either do that by imagining 
that you're going to live forever, or you can do it by imagining that you're going to get everything done that you need to get done by the end of next week, right? They're both different routes to not being constrained by, by finitude. And I kind of think probably fear of death is where that stops. And I, I think there's a, I think, you know, I'm more, I'm more, I think the, argu the argument that capitalism in its worst excesses is a symptom of the fear of death hmm. makes more sense to me than that all of this comes from at the economic level first. But yeah. um, what do you think? <laughs> yes, we did put in conversation, which... Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I am writing and thinking a lot about pride and what pride is because the way we use it now has moved quite a long way. Um, and we generally use it as a positive. And there's good reasons for that. You know, black pride, the, the, the I am proud of you that we say to someone that we love, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but throughout the history of my tradition, theologians have talked about pride as this, as something deadly, as something um, that separates us from each other and from God and our full humanity. And reading your book helped crystallise, I think that's the language I would put mm -hmm. to the problem that you're so wisely and kindly going after. I hope that we are God in some way, you know, our, our desire not to need help, not to need others, not to be woundable, mm -hmm. not to be vulnerable. Um, and just how kind of tender and foolish and completely understandable and destructive mm -hmm. it is in us. Um, so, so I'm, I want to try something on you, which is related, but not directly. But what, as I was reading your books, it really clarified for me um, where I think Christianity has a slightly different response mm -hmm. because particularly in the antidote, that comes up a lot in 4,000 weeks as well, Forgive me, I'm going to narrate something and you can push back on me. But it felt to me like you were starting from a place that we all start. Or maybe you were saying we all start from this place, also me, um, of a deep, uh, deep anxiety and, and fear that, about much of the world. And I, I share it particularly now. Um, but that you went looking for uh, medicines for it. And, and stoicism medicine is to say, if you just change your beliefs about what life should be about, you won't suffer so much. You know, if you can just almost lower your expectations mm -hmm. or become very sanguine about the things that happen to you, you won't suffer, so you won't carry fear. And I'm going to bodge this, but from my understanding, the kind of Buddhism approach is really this kind of non-attachment. We just need to deta detach from the things that we long for, detach from our fears, just get enough distance to see that the world and our thoughts can kind of pass us by, but we can remain tranquil, we can remain steady. And there's the Eckhart Tolle thing of the self. And, mm -hmm. and as I was reading this, I realized that I think I used to be a, technically a Christian, but temperamentally a Stoic because I had internalized one verse in the Bible where Paul says, I have learned to be all things, I have learned to be the same in any circumstances, right. in poverty or riches, in oppression or people lording me. Very stoic thought, yeah. Exactly, I mean, and obviously he, he read and knew this work. The New Testament is in conversation with these ideas, right? They, they thread together, they're not separable. But 
I had come to think that being a real Christian was someone who was very tranquil and unbothered and not anxious because I had the peace that passes understanding and, you know, Jesus had taken away my sins. And holiness was emotional steadiness. Uh Uh, But I now don't think that. I think the Christian response to the deep fear and the deep anxiety of being a fallible human person in the world and that temptation of pride is not to feel less but to feel more Mm -hmm. and that when the New Testament talks about sin it talks about hard-heartedness and it talks about um, yeah their hearts were hardened and we see anger and sadness in the person of God, in Jesus, in others. Forgive me, this is a much more theological digression than I intended to do, but that um, it takes a very different approach. It says the way to deal with the pain of being a person is to, is to be continually processing it through these stories, to continually be following the drama of scripture, to be in the rhythm of the liturgy, which shapes time mm-hmm. and takes you through Good Friday and back to Easter and through Good Friday and back to Easter. and and stops your heart getting hard. But I'm definitely less happy (laughs) than I was. And the pull to deal with anxiety about human limits by by having non-attachment is so appealing because I want not to be angry about injustice and I want not to be grieving about the climate. But I increasingly think That is a form of escape Mm -hmm. for me. As you go deeper into Zen Buddhism and you take this incredible concept of time, which seems to connect to every big idea, what's your journey with that fear? And where have you landed for the things that feel both helpful but not a form of escape? Again, I'm very sorry about that. That's so interesting. No, 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 it's brilliant. I mean, first of all, it's definitely true that there are people and there are times in my life, maybe even to some extent today, that people who you can use a lot of these things. Stoicism is it's very obvious in certain manifestations of its modern resurgence as what someone, I can't remember who, is called sort of emotional bulletproofing, right? There's yeah. This kind of, this, this way of, of being of seeking to become invulnerable, which doesn't work because it actually leaves you more vulnerable. And There's a couple of people a, that you interviewed that was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> you right. Every the time something bad happens, they go, well, yeah. it could be worse. We could all be wiped out. So, fine. So, I mean, uh, the, uh, yeah. I, and I, that's where I, I, I think that some of that is in original stoicism. Like, I, 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 uh, some people might want to argue with this, but I don't think it's just uh, in what's been called broicism. <laughs> Uh, I'm so glad you said it. I wanted uh, to say it. I don't think it's only that 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 has this this invulnerabilism problem. And, you know, uh, it might have been absolutely the best coping mechanism for some of the situations that that the original Stoics uh, came out of and found themselves in. I guess I I don't want to... There's no... I'm not sufficient of of an expert in the Buddhist stuff to sort of counter what you're saying really but what I here's the here's the difference between what you said and what I think of here I think that um, 
all the ways that I'm drawn to and that I explore in certainly the antidote and later on, some of them can be misused in this way. I may be guilty of having misused them in that way. But what they all have in common are they're, they're sort of um, subtractive somehow. They're kind of dem. They're they're sort of demolitional. They're about sort of letting go of concepts that get in the way and ways of thinking and being that get in the way of being fully present. And there's definitely plenty of of Buddhism as a whole, and it's and lots of this which is all about very fully feeling everything and, and, and embodiment and, mm. and the whole sort of, and, uh, and, and the kind of the focus on posture in Zen meditation is fascinating to me anyway, because it's like, it's this kind of constant refusal to tell you what to do with your mind, because what you're supposed, because what you're focusing on is your body in the world and everything that you're feeling in it. And so I think it's totally, those resources are there in those traditions, although absolutely, you know, I'm a certain kind of cliche in terms of, you know, needing to become more embodied and less of a brain on a stick and all the rest of it. It's there in those traditions. But it says, like, let, we reconcile ourselves to our finitude by just collapsing into it. And as a result, kind of reality opens up in a way that is in some sense infinite, but is it's just, it's just this, right? Um, and it seems to me that Christianity, the way you're talking about it anyway, it's absolutely dependent on this, this there's this other thing, there's this, broad, there's this broader context, which is infinite and is personal in some sense. And it's not just about sort of taking away the barriers, it's about opening to this thing that is there. And that's my basic problem, right? Because it seems like... Um, uh, at least sometimes I feel like I would love to be a Christian, but no matter how many times people say to me that it's fundamentally an orientation to the world or fundamentally about practice and community, it seems at the end of the day you do have to believe that some, in the historical reality of some events and in the construction put upon those events by Christianity. And, you, and like the contrast would be, you know, if like documents were discovered tomorrow showing that all the supposed history of Buddhism was a lie. It wouldn't affect the mm. psychotherapeutic spiritual claims being made by that tradition, as far as I can see. Mm. But it would completely. Uh, but Christianity is dependent on its story in a in a different way. And if I can't will myself to believe that, then I'm sort of out of luck, aren't I? Have you ever read the actual Pascal's Wager? No. I would, I've been rereading it recently, and I think I want to kind of say yes and to what you've said, because believing is a complicated word. You know Perspectiva and the work of Ian McGilchrist a little bit, yeah. and I think what his work is showing is we have different modes of attention and attending to the world which lead to different ways of knowing, and we have a created a world which makes a very uh, left hemispheric way of attending and knowing easy, because mm -hmm. it's constantly being reinforced, concrete, linear. Um, and a right hemispheric way of knowing, I'm sorry, I can unpack this, I'm gonna whiz right through it. Um, the realm of the imagination and art and music and religion yeah. is easily atrophied yeah. in our world in a way that feels like 
if you don't speak your mother tongue, you lose it. Mm -hmm. And then someone else speaking it sounds gobbledygook. And so I think for me, I had a period as an atheist, I have a lot of friends who are not atheists, and whether Christian or, or, or other religions, the invitation into the practices first is not to say the beliefs don't matter. It's not to say, oh, we don't care whether you believe in God or not, as long as you come along and sing some hymns and do confession and you know, celebrate Easter. And Pascal unpacks this really well because he does this, like Pascal's wager uh, is not this mathematical, you know, you might as well believe because it's low cost, you know, what you're gonna lose. It's much more, I don't know, I can't know. And this is years after he had his famous night of fire where he's like, not the God of philosophers. He feels like he's met God. And then a few years later, he's like, I don't know if I believe in God. And I have that regularly, <laughs> this like wow. complexity. Okay. But what the, what, the, what the practice is, and it's so, it is so clear in your book, you talk about rhythms, you talk about commitments, you talk about structure, you talk about grace, you talk about commitment to community. What those things do is they form us, they form our ability to attend, they form our ability to know. Mm -hmm. And Pascal basically says, um, like, get yourself out of that tortured, do I believe, do I not believe, and just go to church. Like, do the things, sing the songs, and it changes you, it changes your imaginative world. And so I, I think, I think, the question is too binary. I think it's entirely possible to practice, um, and I don't want to just define it to Christianity, but it's entirely, because your book does seem to be po pointing towards the kind of life, Rowan Williams says it's the hidden geniuses of religion. Everyone knows they've got stuff to say about ethics, but people forget that they are um, systems for organizing time. Right that you can be invited into these rhythms and structures and rituals because they're a good way of organizing time. Yeah. And not believe in a thing about right. it in the sort of very less hemispheric way we talk about it and still gain from mm -hmm. it, still find steadiness and rootedness. But also it might create the preconditions for a different kind of attention, a different kind of knowing would be my response to your it's not that I think believing is irrelevant, but I think we need to complicate the meaning of that term. I want to open up to the floor very shortly, but I am going to stay with that sense that so much of what you are so wisely and beautifully and kindly inviting people into are the kinds of rhythms and structures that people used to be able to access through religion. Mm -hmm. For many people, that's just not accessible. Some people have very important in, you know, understandable reasons why that sounds like a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. What do you see in the world that might help people structure time, structure their lives, to move towards the kind of vision that you're holding out? Have you found any um, ways of doing that yourself, kind of practical things you can point people to? I mean, the first thing that springs to mind is that it seems to me that what matters is, there's a temptation if you're, if you're hungry for that kind of thing, and I've certainly been down this route to, to try to build your own version of them that you're going to do in your life and to have a sort of, uh, I mean, j just look at the sort of at, uh, morning routine YouTube 
for like five minutes. It's it's wild. There, it's like there's so there's people are obsessed with this question of like building the building rituals and rhythms in exactly the right way. I think it's rather obvious, at least in the context of our conversation, what's wrong about that, which is like that uh, that is almost in every circumstance going to uh, worsen the problem of trying to go it alone in life, just in a sort of packaging that looks a little bit like maybe they do in monasteries or something. Uh, it's not going to actually address the, the issue. So I find again and again and again, often sort of slightly against my will, that it's the, the place to look is in, collect, in rhythms that are truly collective and that really do exist, even if they are very, seem very like mundane or um, scant by comparison with these kind of great, wonderful, liberating I don't think, religions. if you're going to say choirs, I don't think choirs are mundane at all. No, I would say choirs in one, in one aspect, which is choirs and other groups that meet at a specific time in the week and you have to go there and be at them, right? I mean, it's so, it's such a, all the best advice feels like it's been given um, a million times, but it's like join things, and the part of the joining of things is that you're, is that you have to do them at that at that time, um, and just sort of the rhythms and of of just life, right? School run. Um, uh, whose turn is to make dinner tonight? Um, the the the. the just you can enter into those things that are there in in our lives i think in a slightly more whole-hearted way first of all if you're me you have to go through a long period of kind of resisting them and getting furious at the way that they get in the way of your brilliant schedule that you planned for your for your life but then you do eventually realize to some extent that you wouldn't have it any other way because the the collectiveness is what counts i don't think the um whether we have fully structured, whether it's always a Sabbath, whether it's, you know, every moment of the day, that, that's less important than just finding those bits of the world that are, in some sense, collective rhythm and ritual. Just being here, right? I mean, it's not, it's partly the stuff that we're talking about and interested in talking about, but it's partly just that every single person who wanted to be involved in this had to come to one place at one time, even if they'd have rather done it at a slightly different time or a slightly different place. Yeah. Um, would have been more convenient for me if this had been in Yorkshire, you know? Um, uh, so I think that is the answer. There's some lovely quote from Tobias Wolfe that I used to have pinned above my desk, but then I moved my desk so it was in front of a window so you can't pin things above it. Um, and that about, about um, uh, how, yeah, uh, I'm not going to try and quote it, but it's just about this, this notion that... Um, what works is to is to be held in these rhythms of of all the all the things that you feel are going to get in the way of your um, your work and and what he calls all the sovereign bullshit of being a writer. Right, this idea that this idea that because you're doing something supposedly creative or artistic, that they, these rhythms shouldn't apply to you or should come come second. And actually, they're the things that make the whole thing yeah meaningful. I was. Um... Can I have some cards with sacred values if we've got some? I um, was reading your book. Uh, you have these beautiful chapters about um, marching together in time and the kind of effect, effect oh. the effect of, of marching together or moving together or dancing together actually has on our kind of biochemistry yep. and the ways it can make soldiers march much further because we are becoming in some ways one orgasm. Oh. Hmm? <laughs> there you go, yeah. Ooh. 
Wilhelm Reich. Yeah, it's been done before. One organism. Yeah. Um, uh, but how we have, because of this myth, with our failure to surrender any of our autonomy and control, means it gets harder and harder. And I was trying to schedule getting four friends together via WhatsApp, yeah. and it becoming this kind of Sartre level hell. <laughs> Three weeks later. No, sorry, I can't do that anymore. Oh, that's yeah. What about August? And I, you have this line, we've constructive lie, we have constructed lives that cannot be made to mesh. Mm -hmm. And it felt so sad and so true that in our desire for more freedom with our time and more autonomy, we have actively isolated ourselves from mm -hmm. other. That is appalling for our well-being. And it was just beautifully put. Friends, we are uh, coming to the end of our formal time. Before I thank Oliver, I want to say, buy the book if you don't already have a copy of it. And I can say that completely unreservedly. It is, I joked, if you'd been born 100 years earlier, you would have been a minister, but I sort of think you are. I think you're doing a kind of ministry in bringing powerfully transformative ideas to people in a very, very readable and accessible form. Um, and there is, we have only touched on a tiny, because I selfishly wanted to uh, drill into a few other themes tonight. So um, please buy it. And Oliver is going to be very happy to be there on that table signing copies. They are available from Aidan out there. So you can do a little circuit. Um, the bar will be open. The complimentary booze I don't think has yet run out. So fill your boots. Um, when it does, the bar downstairs will be open for a bit longer, I think. You'll probably get kicked out of here about 10. I would love you to stay. I'd love to have a chance to meet as many of you as possible. I'd love you to have a chance to meet each other. My experience is sacred listeners are very diverse in where they come from, very diverse in their political, religious, non-religious views, but have a defining and um, have in common a curiosity and an openness to the world and other people, which makes you very special. So meet each other and maybe ask each other the second question. What were the formative ideas in your childhood? Because that will avoid small talk, which is not allowed. Um, and so I'm going to close by asking you to join me in thanking Oliver for a really rich uh, and beautiful evening, his book and his work, and for sharing his tiny amount of his 4,000 weeks with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much.